Hello everyone and good day to our listeners from all around the world. This is the EVC podcast. Welcome especially to those of you who are interested in the issues of international relations and security in its multiple dimensions and forms, which is the paramount topic of all episodes of this podcast. The EVC podcast is produced by our organization, the European Value Center for Security Policy, or shortened the EVC, which is based here in Prague and that focuses on current security policy issues, both in Europe and all around the world. My name is David Plasek. I am an analyst of the EVC and I focus on the region of China and East Asia in general. And I will be moderating this episode. Today's episode will be in fact a reaction on a very current event. And that is the tragic death of Mr. Shinzo Abe, the former longtime prime minister of Japan. Mr. Abe, uh, who was actually the longest serving prime minister in the entire history of Japan, died at a, in a hospital of his wounds after an assassination attempt at the start of last month, at the start of July. Mr. Abe was mar- murdered by a gunman who fired homemade weapon during a campaign stop before the next election. And this tragedy shocked both Japan and the entire world. And it is a case of a political violence that did not occur in Japan after 1945. Mr. Abe was 67 years old. So the specific main goal of our today's discussion here is to talk about the political legacy of Mr. Abe about his work and career as a leading figure in Japanese government in two separated time periods before he stepped finally down in 2020. He was, especially in the security and strategic terms, a profoundly impactful person for the course of his country and in many ways transformed Japan. Uh, So, we, we could sum up his legacy, and we're going to talk about it in, in a minute, as a, as a combination of economic reforms and reforms in the realm of foreign affairs. For these reasons, today, uh, we invited as the main guest on this podcast, a leading expert on Japan in the Czech Republic, to give and share with us his insights and reflections on this topic and that guest is Professor Jan Sikora. He is a professor at the Institute of Asian Studies and the Institute of International Studies at the Charles University here in Prague, and he focuses long-term on the socio-economic and intellectual history of pre-modern and modern Japan, and he's also author of a number of publications on Japanese thought and culture and current issues of Japanese history. So let me please welcome him here. Uh, good afternoon, Professor Sikura. Thank you very much for being here. Good afternoon. It's my great pleasure and privilege to be invited to participate in such an um, extraordinary event. Thank you very much. Uh, so together during the next roughly 30 minutes, we're going to 
we planning to shed light on what was the real impact of Mr. Abe and his governments on Japan itself and its standing in the world. Uh, but first, just let me give a little outline of the timeline of Mr. Abe's political career. So Mr. Abe was actually born in 1954 in Tokyo. And uh, for the first time, he was elected to the House of Representatives in the 1993 election. Uh, he was elected as the member for the Liberal Democratic Party, the Conservative Party, which uh, he connected his fate to for his entire political uh, career. Uh, later, Mr. Abe was holding a number of important positions. Uh, and in the end, in 2005, he was appointed a chief cabinet secretary by Prime Minister Koizumi uh, before replace, replacing him actually as both Prime Minister and the President of the political party in 2006. The next year, Mr. Abe spent as a Prime Minister and uh, after stepping down in 2007, he became a Prime Minister again in 2012 and then held the position for a record of eight years until 2020, as I said before. So I think we got a at least rough idea about how long this person was important in the politics of Japan. And I would ask uh, our guest, Mr. Sikura, I would ask you if you could also summarize for us then um, the difference between these two governments of, of Mr. Abe that were separated by the three years when the uh, when the uh, other party was in power. So how would you describe the the divisions or the the focus and, and, and the program of these two governments under under Mr. Abe also when concerning the, the, the importance of foreign and security policy? Uh, yeah, the second uh, term uh, of uh, Prime Minister Abbas is closely related uh, to the key words uh, Abenomics, so which uh, prove uh, that uh, he just uh, just have uh, uh, in mind uh, the, something like a lesson uh, from his uh, previous collapse, and um, he just uh, turned his uh, focus on the domestic, uh, econo mainly economic problem. Uh, but uh, in order to understand uh, clearly the situation uh, after the three years of opposition, former opposition uh, Democratic Party, we'll have to uh, focus closely or more in details uh, on the, the concept of Abenomics, because uh, it's called the Abenomics and uh, it's labeled as an economic policy, but uh, in fact uh, there are two phases of the so-called Abenomics. So we can take Abenomics as a politics and also as an economic, uh, say, economic uh, policy. Uh, so Abenomics as a politics uh, means uh, the, uh, the clash of uh, three groups uh, interest, uh, because uh, when we look at uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, it looks like a one party, but actually it's the mixture of uh, several fraction, factions, 
and uh, or fractions which represented the different goals and the different um, uh, way vested uh, interest. Uh, so Abenomics as a politics means the clash of three strong politicians, um, Abe Shinzo, Prime Minister, uh, which was uh, very uh, well economic uh, oriented um, politicians. Uh, the other was uh, the Aso Taro, uh, Prime Minister of Finance in uh, Abe's uh, government. Uh, he was uh, the so-called old-fashioned uh, pork barrel uh, politicians, uh, which uh, just uh, stress uh, the necessity of something like a fiscal stimulus. And the 3A, the third A, uh, was uh, the Amari Akira, uh, the Minister uh, for Economics, uh, who was closely related to the industrial sector. And uh, he just stressed the necessity of completely new industrial policy. So, uh, and could we could, could we maybe could we maybe say that uh, the vision for Japan by Abe was uh, to 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 be uh, to 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 become or maybe in some words we can say to 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 remain a a very important global economic power and and a power that should be center of innovations of the new new economics. Could you could could we could we say uh, could we describe it like that? Uh, yeah, there, there was a gap because, uh, for example, the uh, Amari Akira uh, just stressed the necessity of uh, just technological invention and the, the, the different industrial target policy, uh, while the Abe Shinzo uh, just focused on, say, monetary policy, uh, because Japan since 90s suffered from the deflation. The, we are now confronting uh, the, the inflation problem. But Japan, most crucial problem since the clash of the bubble economy was the deflation. Uh, so uh, the Abe uh, economic policy was based on so-called three arrows, Sambon uh, in Japanese, uh, which means the three pillars. Uh, the first one was the bold monetary easing, uh, shift from the deflation policy to uh, to to some uh, some some words controlled inflation uh, the inflation target was set at uh, 2% which uh, seems to be very low but uh, when we compare it to uh, the more than uh, 15 years of uh, deflation it's pretty high uh, rate of inflation and uh, the other uh, step of the bold monetary mo monetary policy uh, was uh, the pumping of money into the, particularly the uh, economy through the company investment and uh, through the strengthening of domestic demand, particularly the consumer spending. It was the first pillar or the first row. The second one was the flexible, say, fiscal policy, uh, which was uh, based on the stimulus package. Uh, it means the pumping huge uh, amount of money, more than 20 trillion of Japanese yen uh, for supporting the economic growth and for creating the new jobs. And also the part of this fiscal policy was the tax hike, uh, including both income tax and consumer tax. Uh, during the uh, the second term of Abe's government, uh, there were two hikes, uh, 
uh, hikes in uh, consumer tax in 19 uh, in two sorry in two, um, uh, 2014 uh, the consumer tax jumped from 5% to 8% and in the 2019 from 8% to 10% which was also extremely high compared to the fact that in the mid uh, 80s uh, there was a zero uh, consumer tax in Japan and the third pillar or the third row was uh, the growth uh, strategies uh, uh, towards the private investment to structural reform to deregulation uh, such sectors as agricultural building um, industry labor market and so on so the mixture of these three, uh, three uh, aspects uh, was seen as a road to uh, the economic prosperity and to gaining uh, the number one position at least in uh, uh, the uh, East Asia region. Thank you very much for, for describing the abenomics because it's a... It's a uh idea or set of, of ideas that uh, is not often explained well, even though people do use this name. So it's uh, one of the terms that is very much connected to Mr. Abe and his legacy. But I would also ask you, because the significance of Mr. Abe's legacy uh, became also prominent uh, in the second term, as well as the first one, also because it transformed the, the foreign policy of Japan. And it's it's long-term relations toward the United States and Western world in general. So if you could please uh, also describe the situation in that dimension of Mr. Abe's government's policies. Uh, yes, definitely. I mean uh, that uh, during the Abe's government, the tie between United States and uh, Japan was very, very strong. Uh, and it's uh, when you introduce uh, the history or the life of uh, Prime Minister Abbas, uh, you just mentioned that he was a very influential uh, politician uh, with a very strong uh, family background. His grandfather, uh, Kishinobusuke, uh, was uh, very closely related to uh, President Truman. Uh, and uh, I mean that um, Abe uh, just uh, continued this uh, family tradition. Uh, I can show a one uh, very well-known uh, example. Uh, he visited uh, President Trump as a first foreign representative just after his election, still before taking officially his office. It was something extremely uh, extraordinary uh, step and uh, Abe was uh, criticized for such, uh, for such a step. Uh, but uh, he explained that it was the manifestation of the close relations, I mean extraordinary close relations uh, between the United States and um, uh, Japan. And this uh, relation uh, can be also proved by the, uh, well, uh, cooperation in the, uh, in the realm of the defense uh, particularly uh, the strengthening the position of Japanese self-defense forces uh, because under uh, the Abe, Abe cabinet, particularly in July uh, 2014, uh, Abe decided to reinterpret Japan's constitution 
and to allow the right um, uh, something like a call literally saying collective self-defense uh, which uh, would allow the self-defense forces to come uh, to the edge of um, an ally under attack uh, outside the, the territory of Japan. So it was completely uh, extraordinary uh, step uh, towards the so-called collective uh, defense uh, in cooperation with in close cooperation with the uh, United States. I would maybe follow this uh, few sentences that you were just uh, saying and ask you about if you can describe how big change it actually is in Japan when it comes to the army and also its financing and the reform as well as the Japanese constitution that also had to be um, reformed because of this, uh, uh, this uh, issue. Isn't it so? Uh, yeah, this, uh, this is a very tricky problem. Uh, because uh, the post-war Japanese constitution was a production of uh, American lawyers. So it was not uh, the constitution written uh, in Japan by Japanese for Japanese, but it was the constitution written in, United, in the United States by uh, American uh, experts and lawyers for Japanese people. Uh, and uh, the most crucial uh, or controversial item is uh, the Article 9, uh, which actually was not uh, the in original intention of uh, the constitution uh, maker. Uh, it was the Japanese side who stressed and put in this article. And it's very, very clear, very simple, uh, because uh, the, the, the content of this uh, Article 9 is that uh, Japan refused uh, to use the strengths as a uh, mean for solving uh, the international problems. And if you do not uh, well, uh, solve the problem by force, so you do not need any military forces. And that's all. Uh, so it's very simple, uh, two-line uh, definition, and it depends on how to, uh, how to interpret, how to define uh, this very simple uh, wording. And uh, since the 50s, uh, this wording was uh, interpreted or reinterpreted several times. Uh, first time in uh, 2000, uh, in 1940, uh, sorry, 1950, uh, when uh, the so-called reserve uh, forces was formed, and uh, in 1954, when self-defense forces was formed, uh, exclusively uh, as a defense uh, corps. Uh, but uh, with the, the in the very beginning of 90s. Uh, when uh, the world uh, became more complex after this clash of the bipolar uh, division of world. Uh, so uh, Japan was uh, called to participate in uh, the realm of, uh, say, collective, um, uh, collective security. Uh, and uh, for the first time, uh, the Japanese uh, self-defense forces were dispatched uh, outside Japan, but uh, 
also but only as a humanitarian uh, corps or some um, special troops uh, which was not for fighting but for supporting uh, the military operations and um, uh, Abe's government uh, just uh, gave a very huge step forward uh, to completely change uh, the uh, status of uh, self-defense forces and proved the right of the so-called collective self-defense, which uh, opened the gate uh, to uh, the any uh, military operation of Japanese self-defense forces outside Japan, of course, under very strict uh, definition and standard, very strict limit, but the gates are open. And that's uh, the uh, one of the most uh, crucial, controversial items of Abe's uh, government in this, uh, in this field. Yes, uh, I, I understand. And <clears throat> this promise, of course, connected to the long-term vision that, they, that he and his government had for Japan when it comes to Secretary of Foreign Affairs, as we talk about the very important and, and, and in his family traditional relationship uh, towards the United States. So I would also mention that there were other, let's say, initiatives under uh, Prime Minister Abe that were concerning their relationship with the United States that were, all of them were not only on bilateral a bilateral platform, but also with other countries together. For example, there is this uh, quadrilateral security dialogue called Quad, which is the four countries, right, in the in, in the um, Indo-Pacific, which is United States, Japan, and India and Australia. Uh, and also, we can very much so notice in the past months how much the organization of NATO and Japan are getting more uh, together when it comes to the long-term plans. Um, Japan was even for the first time invited to the summit of, of NATO in Brussels uh, months ago in the summer of, of this year, of 2022. So would you describe the changes under Abe as be it trying to to conduct or to create more alliances with other Western and Indo-Pacific countries that are democratic ones? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you have pointed out a very critical problem, a shift from the bilateral to multilateral security, in the, at least in the, the region of East Asia, in the Pacific and East Asia. Uh, until the Abbas, or even during uh, the Koizumi, his predecessor, Koizumi Prime Minister, uh, the, for, for Japan, the main partner was the uh, United States. And uh, the growing strength of China was also seen through the lens of this bilateral cooperation. Uh, but uh, Prime Minister Abbas, as I mentioned, uh, due, particularly during the first uh, uh, term, uh, just grasp that uh, the uh, Indo-Pacific, or the, at least the, the Pacific region, needs the more stable architecture uh, based on the multilateral interests and multilateral actions. Uh, so Japan uh, started to uh, just the several initiatives 
how to strengthen, how to build up and how to strengthen uh, these, um, I mean, collective um, um, security attempt, uh, particularly not only to, to uh, China, but vis-a-vis uh, -vis particularly to North Korea. Uh, because Japan understood that uh, the problem of North Korea cannot be uh, solved or stabilized on the bilateral level. Uh, so uh, the cooperation uh, with the United States, uh, Japan, Australia, and the other, I mean, big uh, agents of uh, this uh, in this in this uh, region uh, seems to be uh, very important uh, not only for Japan itself but uh, for the stability in this uh, region uh, per se. Yeah, this issue basically is also one of the other attempts, I feel, on the Japanese side to try to solve the issue of East Asia since the Second World War. And that's uh, the fact that there is not happening any integration process, let's say, similar to EU or NATO. And even, even the countries, democratic Uh, rich countries like South, South Korea and Japan and, and others do not have these kind of strong alliances like we have do, we do have here in Europe. And as you mentioned, uh, the the initiative of uh, having strong relationship with the United States is at the same time followed uh, under Mr. Abe with more assertive approach towards China, which is the real uh, which is the uh, hegemon in creation in, in East Asia. Could you maybe set few uh, your, your opinion on, on this issue, on the changing uh, behavior and changing relationship with China under, under Abe? Uh, yeah, I mean that uh, particularly Japan became more uh, self-confident uh, Uh, on one hand, and on the other hand, uh, it was uh, very controversial. Uh, why? Because um, Abe could be labeled as a uh, right-wing nationalist also, and it, it was labeled as a right-wing nationalist, and was uh, or hold, uh, held a very negative view on Japanese history, denying many historical facts. Uh, and um, it was uh, the uh, very strong barrier uh, in such a building of new architecture. Uh, but anyway, Japan in this period, when we put aside these ideological uh, problems, but when we look at the uh, political view uh, on uh, Japanese situation and, and, the, and the place of Japan in the, in the region, uh, I mean that uh, Japan became more self-confident and uh, just... Uh, Uh, get, um, uh, I mean, stable, more stable uh, position uh, in, in the process of, uh, I mean, stabilizing this uh, region uh, or the, the policy in this region. And maybe because you mentioned it, and I will take the opportunity uh, to also ask a little bit more details on the on the other uh, problematic country in East Asia, and that is North Korea. How, how exactly the government under Abe was treating this problem differently than, than the governments before? Uh, 
Uh, well, we will have to distinguish between the, the approach or attitude toward the North Korea and South Korea. Now, I'm talking about North Korea now only, of course, only yeah, North, North Korea. Korea yeah. uh, well, uh, there is a one very positive and highly evaluated outcome uh, from Abe's politics uh, towards uh, the North Korea. And it was the problem of, uh, or the solving of the problems of uh, so-called Rachi uh, Mondai, uh, which means uh, the uh, the problem of uh, Japanese citizens enacted uh, uh, um, to North Korea uh, in the last, say, 20 years. And um, thanks to the very uh, I mean, folks, the foreign policy of Abe's government, uh, he uh, was uh, an instrument in this return of such uh, abducted uh, Japanese citizens uh, to North Korea. Uh, so it was very, very strict and very positive outcome from his policy. But when we look at uh, the so-called North Korean nuclear uh, program or the nuclear activities, um, uh, well, I mean that uh, Abe's government uh, or Abe's uh, terms are uh, closely related to the strengthening of, uh, of such, uh, uh, say, uh, non-confidence vis-a-vis. Uh, so, um, my view is that uh, Japan and North Korea now are, are um, more or less uh, just uh, uh, far away or far than uh, they were, uh, say, during the, the Koizumi's uh, government. All right. Uh, and, and when we talk now about, we talk a lot about past and, and the time under, uh, under Mr. Uh, Abe's premiership. So when we talk about today's uh, situation in, uh, in Japan and, and legacy of Mr. Abe, and now I would focus just on the, to make it easier, just on the foreign policy and, 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 and the security uh, goals of Japan. So Mr. Kishida is by, by many viewed as a person, the, the, the current Prime Minister, Mr. Kishida, uh, is in in many ways being seen as someone who will now, after the death of Mr. Abe, and, and as he was also before, still pushing for some of these goals. So how do you actually see the future of Japanese foreign policy? Do you think that the uh, the relationship with, with United States will go the same direction under this government and its relationship with China and other countries in East Asia? How would you see the most immediate future in this area? Uh, well, in my view, there will not be uh, some strict or strong shift uh, in uh, foreign policy. Uh, Prime Minister Kishida served as a mini, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs in uh, Abe's government and uh, they shared uh, almost the same view on the role of Japan in, uh, the, in the agenda of uh, foreign policy and international relations. Uh, the main difference is in the economics. 
because as I mentioned, uh, the abbess uh, just focus mainly on these three pillars, uh, three arrows, but uh, from particularly from the very beginning, completely omitted the social consequences. And uh, Prime Minister Kishida just tried to focus the just to just fill in this gap, uh, defining or calling for the so-called new capitalism, uh, which will um, change or which, which will uh, face the new social phenomenon, like shift from middle-class-oriented society to divided society, to economic disparity, rising inequality, and, and, and so on. Uh, so, back to your question, uh, I mean that uh, in the realm of the foreign policy, we cannot expect or we will not expect uh, the main changes uh, and Japan will follow uh, the, uh, the, 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 the race uh, which uh, actually started uh, uh, prime, from Prime Minister Abe. Yes, thank you very much for your for insight. I, I would... Uh because the time is already almost up, I would sum up the, our today discussion that the biggest legacy of Mr. Abe would be, of course, his his policies of economics, of aggressive of aggressive growth policies, uh, so-called Abenomics, uh, and uh, then in the foreign policy, as we heard, there is there are big uh, big and important decisions that were made, and that's the uh, the even closing up of the, or not closing up of uh, the, the uh, deepening of the relationship with the United States and the change to the multilateral, uh, a multilateral dimension of the relations and the hardline stance vis-a-vis -vis China and North Korea, which will also, as we now heard, will define the situation in East Asia also in the, uh, in the future, in the coming years. So, uh, Having said that, I think this is a good moment to end our podcast episode here today. And I thank you, uh, thank you very much, Professor Sikora, for providing us with your knowledge and expertise. And it, it was very insightful and interesting conversation about past, uh, present, and the future. And also because of the fact that we can expect that there will be increasing interest in this topic and of Japan and East Asia as the uh, shift of power and economics does take place in today's world and uh, that there will be increasing interest and knowledge about East Asia going uh, forward. Uh, thus, this podcast hopefully becomes a part of an important discourse uh, like this in the future. Uh, thank you, Professor Sikora, once more and have a nice day. Yeah, thank you for inviting and have a nice day. Uh, and I wish also to you all, our listeners who are listening, a good rest of the day. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or europeanvalues.com. And until the next episode of our podcast, I say to you all, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>